you know you are capable of more because you have a burning desire to get the absolute most out of life. To starve your fears, to follow your dreams, and to realize your true potential. And we are going to do that together. This is The Andy Stort Show. Let's go. What is up, everybody? Welcome back to the podcast. I hope you are having a fantastic week. I know I definitely am. I am recording this on a Friday and just finishing up an awesome week of travel, of client engagements, and talking with friends and spending time with my family. And uh, I'm sharing today with you a really interesting conversation with a married couple of two entrepreneurs who have uh, just some interesting background and experience and some things they're working on now. Have you ever seen the movie Supersize Me? It was a documentary years ago about a guy who ate nothing but McDonald's for many days and the health effects that came from that. Well, one of my guests today, Alexandra Jamison, or Alex, uh, was uh, one of the co-creators of that documentary. She's a health coach, as well as a mentor and life coach, uh, especially to professional women who want to have it all. And she's also the best-selling author of Women, Food, and Desire, co-creator and co-star, as I mentioned, of the Oscar-nominated documentary Supersize Me, and a highly sought-after wellness expert. And I, with her, I'm also interviewing her husband, Bob Gower, who helps organizations move faster, create better products, and become happier, more engaging places to work. He's an authority on agile software development, lean theory, and responsive organizational design. He's advised leaders in lots of different companies, and he's also the author of Agile Business, A Leader's Guide to Harnessing Complexity, and speaks regularly on organizational development and leadership, so in a similar industry as me. And they actually came on because they're most excited about a project they're working on called Getting to Hell Yes. And that's the name of the book they just wrote together and uh, a project they're doing together where they're starting to help individuals and organizations make decisions better, lead projects more effectively, communicate more effectively. And in this interview, uh, you're going to hear us talk for a while about Bob and Alex's background, how they came together some really interesting stories like how Alex and her ex-husband created Supersize Me, Bob's background and how he learned to become a better leader and overcame the sort of people-pleasing tendencies that he and I both share uh, that allow us to become great networkers but may hurt us when it comes to being a leader. Bob talks in this interview about how he joined a cult for two years and what that almost did to him and how he's now trying to build communities, not cults. Really interesting story. And then Alex and Bob talk about this book and project Getting to Hell Yes, how to set up the conversation and the pillars or the buckets of what the conversation looks like and how you can use this for an upcoming project, for your marriage, for any type of conversation. And uh, I think it's really useful. I'm going to go out and, and try to use it today. They have a free PDF downloadable on their website, gettingtohellyes.com, and you'll hear all about it in the interview. So without further ado, here is my interview with Bob Gower and Alex Jamison. Bob, Alex, welcome to the podcast. Hey. So great to be here. So awesome to have you on. We were just chatting, getting to know each other. Bob Gower and Alex Jameson, you are married. You have different last names. My wife and I are in the same situation, but we were joking about how you could maybe combine those uh, inspired by uh, Anthony Viragosa, 
who was the mayor of LA, at least when I lived there. A lot of people know about him. I guess he's on the national stage. So Bob Gower and Alex Jamison, I've given you like 30 seconds to think about this. How would you combine your last name? Well, we even have a, a third problem. Oh, yeah. Oh, what's that? Yeah. Because my son has his dad's last name. Yeah, so we're a three-name household. Yeah. Sherlock, <laughs> Jameson, Gower. For some reason, I'm imagining that being on the survey, like we're a three-name household. Uh, <laughs> like a percentage of, of families <laughs> in the U.S. But anyway, we, we got connected through uh, our mutual friend, Tuan Nguyen who is an amazing guy. I've had him on the podcast a while back. And it's actually one of the, I think, top three or four most downloaded episodes out of uh, over 100 episodes of the podcast. So, you know, popular guy. And he sent me this email saying, you have to talk to Bob and his wife. They're amazing. And so been really excited to get you guys on. I know you both are entrepreneurs doing different things and you have this project together that we're going to talk about today, but maybe give me a little bit of background quickly on each of you and how you came together and what does life look like for Bob and Alex? That is not a quick story. (laughs) (laughs) So Alex is, um, well, she's an amazing human being. I met her at a a dinner party in New York City about eight eight years ago, eight years ago now. And I had no idea what she did for a living. And on our first date, I figured out that she was that girl from Supersize Me, the vegan chef from Supersize Me. That's right. I was like, I was totally into you in that movie 10 years ago when it came out. And I was so excited. And she's also a health coach. And she really changes people's lives. I, you know, I, I get to actually overhear her coaching sessions. We have an apartment and you know, she works in the kitchen and I work in the office or vice versa. Yeah. Um, along, you know, brownstone. Um, but I ever hear her her coaching session sometimes. And I've tried to be a coach at different points in my life. And I'm like, I, no, I just can't do. I just cannot do what she does. Yeah. Um, the, the level of attention and the way she transforms people's lives is, is mind-blowing. That's awesome. I want to hear about the hippie background, too. She has an amazing family in Portland, Oregon. They're all, like, artists and educators, actually. They've all worked in, like, the public school system in Portland, Oregon, and they live in like really interesting houses that are filled with art and music. They have like family music nights still. It's one of the most delightful things I've ever been a part of. I finally performed after seven years together. Nice. <laughs> I performed just this summer. It was my first time. Yeah. And totally messed it up the second song. No. Anyway. <laughs> That's cool. That reminds me of my my neighbors who live across the street from me here in Orlando who are Ed and Cindy. They're in their 60s. Total like hippies musicians play music all the time and their two sons eddie and andy live next door to me and they are both professional musicians who tour the world in rock bands so you know raising their kids in a house of music uh, it kind of paid off for them <laughs> that's our dream you know is that they yeah. like, don't live next door oh my gosh please let that happen <laughs> <laughs> all right so alex tell me about bob Okay, so, so many things. First of all, he's so self-deprecating. He's an amazing guitar player and singer. He's very, very good. And I am constantly learning new things about him that I had no idea. Just a couple nights ago, I found out that he did, what was it, the Nightingale training that you did? No, no, the How to to Win Friends and Influence People. People. What's his name? Dale Carnegie. Dale Carnegie, yeah. I did it three times. He did it three times. His like dad sent him to go do that training like three times, and that's where he learned public speaking back when he. Wait, was. there's a training based on the book? I didn't know that. Oh yeah, it's really popular. I mean, in, a, in the you know, I know you mentioned the personal development world. Like, yeah, I always think of it as sort of a foundational, like personal development training. It's it's kind of like 
when you look at other personal development trainings, you sort of like Esther, all these other things that kind of came up in the age of, uh, of uh, sort of the human potential movement. I really think of it. They got a lot of, a lot of it came out of Carnegie, you know, and. Oh yeah. I quote that book all the time. It's been like 70 yeah. years. So what's something that Bob, what's something you use on a regular basis that you got from that training that's useful for you? Well, they, I mean, they force you to go again and again. They give you a topic in two minutes and you just have to stand up and they give you like a quick structure for how to, you know, like create a talk. But just that the reps, you know, having to do it again and again and stand up and just talk. You know, one of the things that Carnegie said, which I really loved, or my, my trainer actually said, he's like, we're not trying to get rid of the butterflies in your stomach. We're just trying to get them to fly in formation. And so this idea that nervousness or it can be sort of a generative force rather than something you have to suppress and move through it's something that you actually harness and pull forward and i think yeah like i've gotten much much more comfortable over the years with just you know i don't know if you allow swearing on your podcast but go for it with fucking up you know like i just nice. like, <laughs> you know, like fuck up on stage i'm just like oh yeah that's and i do swear right. fairly regularly as well yeah I want to ask you another follow-up question because I'm really into networking and building relationships. And I'm, I'm so grateful that Chuan introduced us and we're doing that today. I wanted to ask, Alex said that you're often very self-deprecating. And I wonder if that is strategic in helping you build relationships with people or if it's just kind of a natural tendency that you have. And has that worked well for you or, or not well for you? Because I've, I've done that in the past. I have a friend that I think does it too much. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a, there's a balance. Yeah, I've definitely done it too much in the past. Maybe it's a waspy thing. Maybe it's a waspy thing, yeah. <laughs> Both of us were raised in homes where you won't, weren't supposed to be like too big. Don't get too big too for your much. britches. Right. But I also think there is it is strategic for me. I think this one of the ways I think you can really build trust. Actually, I think it was it James Altucher or somebody. I just re- was reading a book the other day about this. That one of the ways you can actually build trust with somebody is to ask them for help. Or to be like, well, you know, what do you think? Or I may be wrong, but... And that can be also... You know, I think that can be kind of a negative phrase sometimes as well. I don't like the way that's used sometimes. It's, it can be used in, a, in an aggressive way at times. Well, yeah. if I might brag about you a little sure. bit more and introduce you, he is an incredible network builder, and hmm. it's very, very natural for you. He loves meeting new people and, and connecting people, where he gets like nothing out of it except the joy of seeing two people who were meant to meet and do yeah. something cool together. He's a consultant, and I had no idea what that meant. For- it can mean anything, really. It's a catch-all. <laughs> it's a catch-all. But then I realized, oh, my gosh, he just wants people who work in these companies and organizations to be better humans to each other and to work more effectively and efficiently so that they're not so miserable. And he's really good at that. Yeah, that's yeah, awesome. Helping people have the conversations. I mean, that's, you know, I'm not trying to segue to our book or anything, but that, but that really is where the book came from, which is, this idea that there are all these missing conversations out there in the world. And sometimes a missing conversation is goodbye, period. I do that often, you know, like I'm, I'm pretty strict about like who I let into my circle and who I don't. And I've gotten, you know, cause I've wasted a lot of time, I think in my life trying to accommodate people who aren't, who are not well-intentioned. But then again, you know, like when you work as a consultant, you end up working with, let's call it problematic people. I mean, that's just the, that's the job actually. Right. And a lot of my desire is to help them achieve their dreams because I think often their dreams are curtailed by their natural tendencies. They're actually, you know, I think they're negatively impacting their organization and negatively impacting and making more work for themselves when they don't really need to. 
And likewise, I just want to make organizations more conducive to people. You know, so often I think we think of work as this place where we can't, we can't really show up or we can't really be vulnerable or we can't really, we can't talk about certain things or, you know, and I I just feel like the world goes better when we find a way to do all of those things. Definitely. And that vulnerability is, is so important for connecting with others. I mean, you were talking about making those connections and building relationships. And I think part of that, I've, I've thought a lot about this because I've always been known for connecting well with others and, and building a network. And part of it, the self-deprecating you know, humor, if you will, I think is a little bit strategic because we bond with others when we feel like they have similar struggles. We, you see someone else and you perceive them as having it all together. We get intimidated and we're like, well, I can't really relate to that guy because he's got it all figured out and I'm struggling over here. But when we can bring ourselves down a little bit, like I said, I think you can go too far, like my friend does. But but I think that that has probably helped you. I'm guessing in in relating to people. Yeah, I mean, I I think so. I mean, I th- and I think the other thing about networking, which I didn't realize as a strength until sort of I think later in life, is that like I didn't even realize it was something valuable, like something I could monetize. <laughs> So later, because it was something that I, you know, and I think this is a, a natural human thing, right? The thing that comes very naturally to us is often the thing that we undervalue. And the things that are difficult for us is the things that we overvalue. And so, yep. you know, like I think calculus is amazing because I can't freaking do it. <laughs> you can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> or physics, you know, like I think it's incredible. Whereas the idea of like just naturally building a relationship with other people. But one of the things I get, I've actually left, I left some business partners not too long ago because I felt like I would bring connections to them and then my connections wouldn't be treated well you know like not intentionally but just like the organization just didn't have its shit together and and wasn't able to like to either give a good you know solid yes or a solid no and string people along in this kind of weird way and so and i was like you know organizations come and go but my network is my life it's my livelihood it's also my you know like my emotional livelihood i guess where i get I get so much meaning. And as Alex says, like, I get so much excitement when two people start doing, you know, like, you know, when I introduce couples and they get married, which has happened on a couple of occasions. Whoa. All right. Yeah. Like that makes me so happy. Or when I introduce, you know, to, you know, a founder to another founder and then they end up building something together. I think that's really, you know, that's cool. Well, Andy, you mentioned before we start talking that you were maybe transitioning your podcast to include a lot more personal development. Yeah. In, in theory, that will have already happened by the time this airs. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. We'll be a good segue show for you. Exactly. You know, I've been in business for myself for 16, 17 years. Mm-hmm. And the one thing I know is true, that if you're an entrepreneur, your shit is going to come up. Yeah. You have to face your own demons and your yeah. shortcomings and your weaknesses and turn them into strengths, etc. Like it's a, it's this is the most, I think, the most hardcore personal development work you can get into, no matter what avenue of entrepreneurship you're in, especially if you're helping other people on a personal level. Yeah. Alex, how did you get into what, doing what you're doing? I actually started as a personal chef. Ooh. I went to a professional culinary program here in New York City that was really focused on healing cuisines and health-supported food. And I had had my own major health problems in my mid twenties and discovered food. I was actually raised by an organic gardener and super healthy parent. I destroyed all that with sugar in my teens and (laughs) twenties, but I went back to it. I was like, everybody needs to eat this way. So I got really back into food and became a 
personal chef and actually worked at the Hole in the Wall Gang camp cooking, uh, you know, all the Newman's Own products goes to fund all these amazing camps. It's, it's camps for children with uh, terminal illnesses. Life-threatening right? illnesses, yeah. yeah. And, okay, uh, I go through a lot of Newman's Own salad dressing here at my house, so uh, maybe I'm helping with pennies here and there. You are, <laughs> yeah, So that's where I started, and then I realized really quickly, A, I could only work with a couple of clients at a time, so it yeah. was not scalable in any way. And I wanted to help people before they got so sick that they needed me to come in and do like intervention cooking for them. So transitioned into health coaching and that's when Super Size Me came out. I was just finishing my health coaching certification when we were making the movie. How did that come about? You don't have to ask about that. Oh yeah. So I was dating Morgan, my now ex-husband, and I was this super healthy food revolutionary doing all this work in healthy food. And he was a budding filmmaker. And we got into this big, really argument about how McDonald's was, he was like, that's crazy. Like you can't sue a food company for you getting sick from eating their food. You go in and buy their food every day. There were two teenage girls in New York city who were suing McDonald's saying you caused our obesity and diabetes. And he said, that's insane. And I said, actually they market their food to children basically saying it's healthy to eat for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And he yeah. said, well, what if I just ate it for breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Bing, light bulb. And I was like, don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> but we started filming like two months later after that conversation. Wow. But it's one thing to go start filming something, but that turned into a really big deal. I mean, everybody knows about Super Size Me. How did yeah, that happen? Crapshoot. We had no idea if anyone would ever see it. And then it got into Sundance. There was no guarantee anything was going to happen. Yeah, working with several doctors through the filming process, and all of them said, "Well, we don't really think anything's going to happen. The body's resilient." Meanwhile, I'm over in the corner, going, "Like, dude, stop! You're going to get so sick." (laughs) He did. (laughs) So it became a very dramatic journey for him, and then it got into Sundance and got nominated for an Oscar, and it just—it was like lightning in a bottle. It really took off. Wow. That's amazing. Alex, when's the last time you ate McDonald's? I might have had a couple of French fries, but I'm totally drawing a blank. It's funny yeah. when we were driving through Oregon last week. It was almost that we all like well, well, I was almost like, ooh, fries. You know, like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> kind of expecting you to say, I never touched it again. <laughs> the thing about they always draw you back in, I guess. Well, what I loved actually, I mentioned that I really liked seeing her in the film. And I think what I like, I mean, I, cause I was living in San Francisco and I've known food revolutionaries my whole, you know, my whole life yeah. and, and kind of been in and out of that world my whole life. But what I loved was like, I don't think I'd ever known a vegan before who would like tolerate, you know, their partner, you know, who wouldn't like judge. You were just kind of like rolling your eyes and you're like, ah, well, what do you, okay, I'll help you do what you're doing. And, and then when I met Alex and kind of learned about her, one of the things I realized was that the, even though she was only in a couple of scenes in that movie, she brought many of the experts that were interviewed during the movie and I think really gave it its heart in a lot of ways. I mean, I think the, the showmanship and the, and the drama of watching Morgan's body change was incredibly powerful. But there's this other piece of it where it's, it's sort of there's this deep, meaningful piece to it where it's... And it's a you journey. need the context, the context yeah. and the narrative around it. Otherwise, you don't yeah. know what's going on. And yeah. you as a, and as an audience member, you watch it and you kind of discover with him and with them when they're on the journey together. Uh, anyway, it's a, it's a wonderful film. That's awesome. So Alex, you have the health coaching business. You have one other, you have a podcast as well, right? So 
I actually transitioned out of health coaching about four or five years ago and really am doing like success mentoring, positive psychology, full life and success mentoring for women. Oh, so I probably shouldn't have you on this personal development show then it's not. Oh yeah. It has nothing to do with what I do at all. (laughs) Her most recent book before this one that we did together is back here somewhere, Women, Food and Desire, which really looks at how diet is impacted by and impacts, you know, kind of the sort of the cyclical nature of it about all the other aspects of your life. You know, like you might subsume your sexuality into food, you know, like if you have a bad relationship with your body or when it comes to success, when it comes to your career, when it comes to your relationships and all of these sort of, in any way. It's a beautiful book. He's my best hype man. (laughs) That's beautiful. What you do for each other. I love it. That's cool. And Bob, how did you get into doing what you're doing? My career, I've been a teacher. I was also a a visual designer for a long time, Uh, actually newspaper designer, as well as during the dot-com boom, I was a website designer. So I've been interested in type, interested in design. But what I found is that that kept putting me into, and I kept getting promoted um, as a lot of, you know, like young people, like practitioners who are good at what you do, you get promoted to, you know, like the Peter principle, right? You get promoted to where you're incompetent, right? Yeah, right. And I know where I was incompetent was around people. Like I just, I love people. I love being friends with them. And it was funny when I first watched the original The Office before the American version came out. I remember yeah. watching an interview with Ricky Gervais and he says yeah. that the fundamental mistake that his character makes as a leader in The Office is that he tries to be friends with everybody. Yeah. And that was like, I got almost, I almost got like an instant fever when I heard him say that. So I was like, oh shit, that's what I've been doing my entire career. <laughs> yeah, same here. I want to be people's best friend. I don't right. want to be boss. I don't want to be their leader. And then the other piece of it is that I've, I've had a longstanding interest in sustainability, you know, like and sort of the human presence on the planet and about whether or not we're going to you know, be around as a species in a hundred years or 50 years at the IPCC. Most recent report is correct, right? And I have an MBA in, in sustainable business. You study a lot of complexity science and a lot of like systems theory and complexity science when you do the MBA. And one of the things I realized is, is that we're most sustainability efforts in most big corporations are like a green patina on a, you know, like a really rotten machine that sits underneath. And then really, I felt like fundamentally, we ha- if we want to change the outcome of a system, we have to change the way the system operates. We have to change the operational. And I think we're at a point in history where because of the rise of, you know, the sort of post-industrial society, we're in many ways moving to a more post-hierarchical society, I think, in a lot of ways because of the nature of the work that we do and the nature of the way value is created. And so there's this real opportunity right now to fundamentally shift the way organizations operate, and whether it's lean or agile software development or holacracy, sociocracy, and all of these sort of more collaborative ways of managing organizations. A lot of people are doing them because that's the only way to make an organization operate well in an information economy. But also, I think there's a real opportunity for us to begin to, rather than, you know, there's collections of people tend to get dumb. Uh, and tend to get mean, I think, that more so than the individuals in the organization. In the organization are trying to do good and trying to make smart decisions, but the way we operate, our sort of the cognitive ability of that system really gets curtailed by the operation principles of that system. So I got really interested in that. And then I think on the other side of it, I was also, it's not something I talk about a lot, but I'm happy to talk about it here. I write about it. I mean, it's open. But I was in a cult for two years. About 10 years ago, I found myself at a very difficult transition in my life. And I went into a personal development organization that turned out to have certain like uh, very cult-like qualities to it. I ended up living communally for two years. 
and I went broke. I was almost, well, I, not almost, I was, you know, suicidal at the end of the, the two years there. And it was a very visceral experience of group psychosis. Like realizing like, well, the leader can be blamed to a certain degree, but the leader's only as strong as, you know, like they're well, nothing. If we don't right. stick around. What is it? It's about not a call when it's only one person. I mean, you need. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so what is it about me? And also, you know, like when you study cults, not to toot my own horn, but cult members tend to be pretty intelligent. It's actually in the study, you know, like when you look at, at people who study cultic systems, right. like, you know, like cult members, they, they tend to draw successful people often and bright. Well, that's interesting because I'm sure a lot of people on the outside, it's easy to look and say, oh, those people are so dumb. Like, how did they not see that? Like, why didn't they, you know, but it's actually quite the opposite. Yeah. And what's interesting, and it's just really interesting to, to think about that the things that make an organization work are the same things that turn it into a cult, right? This yeah. idea that we want to be bonded to the people around us, that we're, we're in a very, very social species. And so I guess the question that always animates my work with, with organizations is sort of like, how can we build communities and not cults? How can we build cultures but hmm. not cults? I also find myself asking myself over and over again, well, what do I mean by a good organization? You know, like if I'm saying you're going to be good, do I mean that you're going to make more money? Do I mean that you're going to be sustainable long-term? Do I mean that you're producing good outcomes in the world? Because all of these different facets of the ways you might view an organization, it's various outputs, it's various inputs, it's various ways it treats people inside. Like organizations can be great on one end of the spectrum and terrible on another end. Like economically productive, but environmentally damaging would be a classic one. But we've also have like really great nonprofits that I've seen people with great aims who just are completely ineffective. Like they can't raise money, they can't, or they're burning out the people inside the organization. Anyway, that's what my work is about. That is fascinating. Please tell me that you're going to write a book at some point called Communities Not Cults, because I think that is just, that's the name right there. I love it. And you guys are like the most fascinating couple I've ever met. I just kind of want to fly up to, to New York right now. Stuff about this guy all the time. This is, I know, we're just getting started. I want to transition into the project you're working on. Before we do, I, I wanted to say that I can totally relate to you when you talked about, you know, struggling with leadership because you wanted to be everyone's friend. And I can relate to that as well. And I think that, you know, Alex, you mentioned earlier this idea of everyone having strengths and weaknesses and coming to grips with those. And I think oftentimes there are trade-offs and our strengths can be weaknesses in certain situations and strengths in others. And you and I, Bob, are probably very good at networking because we're people pleasers and we want to help people and get people to like us. But that can be a detriment if you need to lead a team and really get people to take action sometimes. So it's a, it's a balance depending on the situation. I was just coaching a client of mine who is herself you know, building a coaching practice. And I said, look, we have to be willing to not be liked by our clients because we got to deliver the truth if we're going to be really serving them. We're a trusted advisor and we're not digging into somebody to try to hurt them, but you have to be willing to possibly even trigger someone, not for the sake of triggering them, but say something that's really going to touch into a core wound that hasn't been healed or hasn't been addressed. That is like the keystone of a lot of their challenges. Yeah, that's so important. I mean, you're, that's, that's how you're going to get results out of people. So let's transition into this project you're working on, Getting to Hell Yes. Tell me about it. What's, what's going on? What are you working on? So this is a really simple conversation structure. 
we decided to write it. It's, as a, it's a very thin book. A very skinny, like 60 to 90 minute read. We had grandiose plans to make it a full book, take it out to publishers, etc. And we realized, no, this is one powerful tool that does not need a lot of fluff around it. And it's a four part conversation to help you have high stakes or highly emotional topics be fairly discussed and equal. And it's really a tool for creating psychological safety, either in a couple or in a team. And it has so many applications. (laughs) We're actually now getting stories from people who haven't even read the book. They've just gotten the cheat sheet. They ran with it, and they're now using it where South Africa to build. Yeah, they're using using it with teams in Africa. I talked to somebody else, a friend of mine, proposed to his girlfriend two days ago, and I had uh, lunch with him yesterday. And he's like, "I'm going to use this to plan my wedding." Which I was like, "That's what we did, you know? Like that's how we came up with high drama, low or high joy, low drama as our design principles for our wedding." Yeah, Yeah. I like that. High joy, low drama. I mean, that that really accomplished that, by the way. Yes, think, we did. It makes you think about your guest list really carefully. Very carefully, yeah. My sister-in-law, who's a new real estate agent, she's been using it in sales conversations with new clients. I mean, we're just getting so many beautiful examples of how people are using it. So it's a, we're... Oh, so, so give, give me an example. How is this used? I'd love to learn more about it. Yeah, sure. And I think first I'll say like, even to get a little theoretical about it, like the, the technique, the idea behind the technique is that it's a pattern interrupt. Um, rather than a new pattern development. So the idea is that when you have a group of people who are relating to each other, um, there's maybe ways they should relate or things they should do together. We don't really worry about that as much as we're just like, let's sort of like get you doing something in a new way. Let's get you trying something new and seeing if that doesn't shake things up and give and, and create some new possibilities. For you. At least that's the way I've been thinking about it a lot, especially with the group work that I do. But the idea is, is that when you're getting ready to do something together, we're all bringing our own desires, our own dreams, our own perspectives to that thing. And usually what happens inside of organizations, the pattern is suppress all that shit and just get on the same page. And that's usually the page of the highest paid person in the room or the the corporate strategy that was set six months ago during some offsite with the leadership team. Just get on that page and figure out how to shoehorn whatever your desires are into it. Well, maybe I'll get promoted if I do a good job. And so the insight I think that we have is that actually that doesn't work very well. What works really well, if you want to get real alignment, real engagement, is you actually have to honor the individual perspectives that are in the room. You really have to embrace them. And so the goal of the process is to generate alignment, is to generate this deep sense of I'm on your side, I'm on your team. We're on the same team doing this thing together rather than pulling against each other. But if you're going to do that, if you're going to get to that place, you actually have to be willing to embrace the possibility that the thing that you're getting ready to do is a really bad idea to do together, you know, and you should probably get to know. The title of the book is Getting to Hell Yes. And we always say that getting to hell no is an equally good outcome, whereas getting to maybe or eh, I think it's an okay idea, like that's the worst outcome. Like that's the outcome that we're really trying to avoid. So to that end, the idea is, is that there are all of these sort of the subtext that we all bring to something we want to surface that subtext in a very, very safe way. And so we designed the conversation to be procedural, given that it's so it's a structured conversation. So I know what part I'm in. I know what I'm doing. I, you know, like that creates a little bit of safety. 
But then we really encourage people to be as vulnerable, as honest, and as real as they can with each other within the con- within that. So that's kind of the broad setup. And then the conversation is just organized into four chunks. No, that was good. <laughs> <laughs> yes, can we do the conversation now? Can we yeah, tell you what it is? <laughs> yeah, come on. Tell me, tell me. Okay, so actually, I, I want to preface it with two kind of ground rules. Okay. And one is that you want to have a nice setting. Like, give this some space. Give this some time. Set aside. Like, we like to not be drinking alcohol. Like, we actually use it in our relationship. Yeah, this can be a personal or a professional context, right? Yeah. So. Okay have water for everyone, have a comfortable setting for it. Tea. And, you know, you can ask clarifying questions of each other, but this is not a place to argue points. It's okay. just a place for each person to share their perspective on the four parts that we're going to share with you. So it's not a place to attack each other. Everyone's just sharing what's going on for them. And as you said, like vulnerability is this catchword that is so big. We need to bring more vulnerability into work. Well, how do we do that? way where people aren't going to feel like scared to actually be vulnerable so that they don't get penalized for speaking their truth. This is actually how you can do that. Awesome. Yeah. And so, you know, that, so if you're the speaker, speak with courage, be as forthright as you can. And of course I always say, because I work in a lot of toxic environments with big corporations. Sometimes I'm like, be reasonable. Like you may know that it's unsafe to talk about certain things in this environment. Don't do that. If that's the case. But also there's probably stuff that you could talk about that you're just not right now. Be reasonable when it comes to the objective fears that like, okay, this might, this might really be a, a problem. But the real magic happens, you know, when we get a little bit outside of our comfort zones or even a lot outside of our comfort zones. So we encourage that to a certain degree. And then also when you listen, we really encourage people like you're not listening to argue points. You're not listening, you know, no one's ordering off of a menu and telling you you have to do anything. You're really just absorbing as much information as, as you can. And one of the really powerful frames that we've, we've adopted is it comes from a former FBI hostage negotiator named Chris Voss, who wrote a wonderful book called Never Split the Difference. Never, Never Split the Difference. Yeah, I've, I've read the book and I've, I've met or at least kind of talked with him virtually. Amazing. <sighs> amazing. Such an amazing guy. I'd love to meet him. But he talks about this idea of tactical empathy. So he's like, as a hostage negotiator, he has to be empathetic to people who whose motives he detests, you know, moral right. on moral grounds. I'm like, yeah, so empathy doesn't mean that you love everything about the other person. Empathy just means you understand it, that you're right. aware of it. So we, we encourage people, like I always give that as sort of an out, you know, like to let people sort of set aside that part of their brain so they can listen in a different way. Because I think really the fact not listening to each other is one of the big problems I, I see, you know, that most humans have. So anyway, sure. so that's the setup. And then we talk about the four buckets. So we're going to go through the four steps and I'll just say them briefly. And then Bob will start us through the process. So we're going to talk about each person shares their intentions, their concerns, boundaries, and you end on dreams. So how would you define intentions? So intention is just your why. It's just why you do things that you do. And it's often very simple. Um, Though I've also had people tell like elaborate personal stories when they've gone through this. I'm working with an organization right now where somebody had to talk about, like, they felt compelled. They were like, I'm doing this because of this, ex- this traumatic experience I had in childhood. And he brought us all the tears. But really, you know, like, let's say I'm doing, talking about a consulting gig. I say, look, I'm doing this because I'm getting paid. And that, by the way, that's a taboo, right? Like, to talk about that my motivation. I know, right? Even though that's why you're there. It's like, oh, don't talk about it. You're not doing it for the money. I'm, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, you know, like, but, but really, most of the jobs I do, I wouldn't do if I wasn't getting paid. That's not all, but most. 
Um, I'm here to get paid. I'm here to learn new things. Usually uh, I'm here to have fun with the team that I'm working with and maybe try some new stuff, you know, like try out some new ideas. So you can, you'll notice that intentions then are connected to values. Like, so clearly I value money. I, I value learning. I value community and I value fun. Right. So it's pretty, it's often, so intentions can be the shortest part of the conversation. It doesn't necessarily need to be. It's not in all cases, but it often is. Would you embellish that at all? Uh, I wouldn't, except to say that, and this goes for the entire conversation, that how psychological safety is created in this process is that no one's dominating the conversation. Each person is sharing. And if you're doing more than a couple people together, then you might have someone with a timer so that everyone gets equal, roughly the same amount of time. Or even a facilitator to prevent crosstalk or, you know, like we facilitate the conversation a lot or, you know, when it's a, when it's a particularly high stakes conversation. Anyway. So after everyone shares their intentions, you move on to concerns. And this is such an excellent, seemingly simple step. I encourage people to like list the tiny little concerns like, mm, I have this worry that we won't miss our deadline, which might be a huge concern for others. But really, you want to you want to address the worries that you have swirling in your head. Yeah. What are the other people worried about? What are they thinking about? Yeah, what are you thinking about? And just putting it out there and allowing the kind of, you know, slightly insane amygdala its place mm -hmm. actually helps it calm down. And this is, you know, the proven psychological tool called self-talk. You know, when you express the worries in your head, then your brain and your nervous system can kind of go, ah, okay, I put that out there. And once you say it, you're like, okay, now I don't have to worry about that anymore. And being right. specific about the worry. Like, I'm concerned we're fit, we'll fail. You know, it's like, well, what do you, what do you mean by fail? What is it? Does that mean money? Does that mean loss? And the more specific you get, the more often you can realize, oh, yeah, that's unlikely. Right. Or if it is, we'll figure it out. Like when we got on today to start this, I, I was slightly concerned. I didn't know if we'd have anything to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> right. Obviously, we do. Funny side note, we used this ICBD four-step process to plan writing the book about the process because I had a concern. I've been in a romantic and creative professional relationship. Right, before. overlapping relationship. Very yeah. badly. <laughs> <laughs> and I was really worried. It's like, what if this ruins our relationship? Huh. What if we end up getting, to, like, this is a fear. What if we end up getting You got married? that concern out there in the open. Yeah. Also getting Oh, well, we end up getting divorced because we're terrible at working together. Yeah. And just putting it out there, it's like, Bob was like, well, then obviously we don't continue writing the book. Like the marriage is terrible. The marriage is more important than the book at this point. Right. <laughs> Got it. Okay. Where do you go from concerns? You move on to boundaries? So yeah. move on into boundaries. And boundaries, you can think of them as a few different, in a few different ways, but really they're the, the, the sort of the bright lines, the things that kind of keep us safe, the things that keep us and in the business environment, I always talk about boundaries being uh, about self-care because self-care is such a taboo. You know, it's, it's weird, right? Like in, in business environments, we want people to be engaged. Engagement is like this million-dollar word these days in the consulting world. But we rarely ask people, what do you need to be most productive? You know, like what kind of environment do you need? And then we also push people to work longer than is probably healthy for, you know, like the modern research on on sort of like cognitive after six hours, most people suffer pretty severe drop off in cognitive ability after six hours of focused work, four hours often. And so like not allowing people to kind of honor that. And so I always say, like, what do you need? Do you, you know, how much sleep do you need? How much work? 
And also in the business world, people are often, their attention is divided among several different projects. So it's like, where does this one show up in your hierarchical priority stack? Let's get that on the table because it may be top for me, but it may be three for you, in which case I should know that because I'm going to be more motivated to do more work here. And that's okay. It's okay maybe if I'm, if I'm more motivated to do the work on this project, but let's talk about it ahead of time. And you can also think about it in terms of, like if we're worried about blowing a budget, you know, like, what, well, what's our budget? That's a kind of a boundary, right? You know, or what's our weekly budget? Or are we just going to check in on the budget every Friday and see where we're at? Can we put a rule in place that's going to keep us moving forward and being most productive as a team? Yeah. And when I teach boundaries to, I teach this process to my private one-on-one clients and maybe they are leading a team in their life or maybe they're a mom or maybe they're in a relationship that needs support. And I, I like to describe boundaries as a line across which you don't go yourself and a line across which other people are not welcome. So how do you want to be treated and how do you want to show up for yourself and what are your commitments to yourself and the team? It's another way to describe it. And then after everybody has their boundaries out, by the way, you can go like, you might forget something or you might think of something or you might want to say, yes, me too. That's a boundary I also would like to adopt. (laughs) Then you get to really the high point and the end is you want to end on a high note and that's dreams or as, as we say in our personal life desires. And you want to go big. You know, you want to say, what would be so amazing if this turned out so beautifully what would that mean for me? What would that mean for you? What do I want for all of us to get out of this? What would be the ideal scenario? And it's you kind of end up like co-creating, co-visioning where it's going. And that is often where you find that push of alignment, where you get so excited or you really have seen each other's hearts through the process that the dream becomes cohesive or not. Right? Again, getting to know is good in advance of putting in a lot of time and effort into something. It's a rare outcome, but it does happen. It is rare. Yeah. And I think one of the things we get, I've been surprised by is how often people end up with dreams or desires for other people, you know, like, Oh, I know you want to get this out of this project. Well, I really hope you get this. We'd like to spend as much time on this part of the conversation as we did on all the other three parts combined, you know, like really luxuriate. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, allow yourself to, like you said, luxuriate or, you know, to spend time on the pleasurable part of where do you want to see things go. So what is your dream for where all this is going to go? Well, it's coming true. It's coming true. You know, we've, we've had a lot of downloads of the book already. We already hit number one on Amazon and we're starting to book some corporate workshops teaching it. We're so excited about that. Our friend who wrote the introduction is a mom of five and an entrepreneur. And she said it truly has changed her life. That she's oh. such a, a more effective communicator. And that she used to just steamroller over everybody in her family. Yeah. And she's like, I'm becoming so good at important conversations. She's teaching it to her kids. I was like, oh my gosh, I want this to be in middle schools. I want people to just have a simple way to communicate. I used to think that every important conversation was going to be a confrontation. So I avoided them. So empowering. If we could all have this tool to communicate more effectively together, a lot of problems would either get sidestepped or solved. And I I want that for the world. 
I love it. So it's already available uh, on Amazon, and you're you're starting to get the uh, the corporate gigs. Really cool. Um, it's also available for free, actually. <laughs> you can just download the PDF of it on our website. We don't even ask for your email address. But at this point, we just wanted it to get out and into as many hands as possible. It's there if you want to buy it. We would love for you to buy it. That's great. A print version on is available, and as well as a Kindle on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. And we have some extras as well on our website if you want. If you want and, and what's the website? Getting to hell yes.com. Getting to hell yes.com. Awesome. You can actually make some beautiful slides. I have to say. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's like a slide deck for facility. I looked at the website before we started recording. It, it looks great. You got the video up there and everything. Last question for anyone who has been, I know you're, you're talking about helping people communicate better, make this decision. People that are sitting there thinking about something they really want to do, either in a relationship or from an entrepreneurial standpoint that they're, they've been afraid to do, and they're, they're thinking about how to take that next step. What's the last piece, the one more piece of advice you would give to someone that's kind of on the, on the cusp of making some big decision that is letting fear hold them back? So we've actually started using the four-part conversation with ourselves. Hmm. We do this individually. I've done it to get clear about a product launch. Bob's been using it as well about whether to keep working with different partners he was working with. So you got to know, got to know. Yeah. So you can use this by yourself now to help you get unstuck or clear about something that you're frustrated with. And that's a perfect place to start. Awesome. All right. So the website is getting to hell. Yes. The book's available on Amazon. And uh, I just really appreciate the two of you coming on the podcast. I'm grateful that our friend Tuan connected us and that we were able to make this time and um, develop our friendship and for you to share some of your experience, insights, and knowledge today. So thank you again for coming on the podcast. You're the last thing for on a Friday for us. And this is like what a great beginning of the weekend. Yeah. Uh, so thank you so much. <laughs> Same here. All right. Awesome. Well, we will definitely keep in touch. Take care, guys. Bye.